Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Bi-Weekly Geopolitical Report for May 29th, 2023. I'm Phil Adler. A new national security law in China is fresh evidence that the global investment environment is changing. Confluence Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady joins us today to discuss how investors can expect this to play out and potential winners and losers. Bill, China already severely restricts the information it allows its own citizens to access. Many U.S. tech platforms like Twitter, Facebook, and Google are banned. Does this new security law go above and beyond what we've already seen? Well, Phil, you're quite correct that China is careful with data and information flows. The so-called Great Firewall of China makes it hard for ordinary citizens to access foreign news media, for example. This update to the national security law is more about addressing institutional access. It broadens the law to encompass research and analysis that results in information gained that China views as sensitive. And since China has already blurred the lines between the public and private sectors, there is little that regulators couldn't deem sensitive. So does this mean that U.S. firms are barred from researching economic conditions within China and can no longer provide information that can guide investment decisions? Well, maybe. The uncertainty is part of the problem and a feature of the law. The Chinese Communist Party likes self-censoring and self-regulation. If anything could run one afoul of the law and the lines of what is permitted and what is not isn't bright and clear, there's a tendency to report or analyze less just to be safe. But this expansion will increase the risk of direct investment in China and will likely reduce investment flows. To clarify, Bill, what do you mean by direct investment? Well, in the balance of payments, economists differentiate between direct investment, which is usually plant equipment and the direct ownership of assets in the country, from financial investment, which is usually equities and debt in the foreign country. By its nature, direct investment puts a foreign investor at the mercy of a foreign government. Such investment requires a higher degree of confidence compared to a financial investment. If we were to consider foreign investment as a spectrum, direct investment shows the greatest confidence, short-term debt the least. Are we already seeing specific instances where China is using this new law to clamp down on foreign firms? Well, to avoid complications with compliance, we won't mention publicly traded names, but in our report, we note that the focus of the new law, at least initially, is toward consulting firms. Now, these firms provide a set of services from basic macro research to specific company research. Of particular interest to the Chinese is the establishment of expert networks that an interested foreign investor can meet with. These networks seem to be established with methods similar to those used by the intelligence services when building sources of information. I suspect the government is concerned that these experts may provide information to foreigners that they would prefer to keep secret. Thus, the crackdown seems designed to end this practice. Does China no longer care about foreign investment? Well, that's really a great question, because China's actions appear to be working across purposes. Earlier this year, after zero COVID was jettisoned, there was a concerted effort by the state to woo foreign investors. That action suggests China wants foreigners to invest in China. Well, how do you explain the divergence between this new national security law and China's stated goal of attracting foreign investment? Well, I can only speculate, but I think the most likely reason is that different wings of government are doing what they have been tasked to perform, but their efforts haven't been coordinated. 
The security services are clearly trying to meet their mandate by actions we detail in the report, such as raids on consultants. On the other hand, those trying to attract foreign investments are mostly provincial and local governments. Policy divergences between different branches of government are not all that unique. We note that in U.S. recessions, we have often seen state and local governments cutting spending in response to lower tax revenue, while the federal government is spending more to support the economy. Do you expect that national security will win out in this particular instance? Well, there's an old saying that victory may not always go to the swift and the strong, but the smart money bets on participants who possess such characteristics. I think it's a really safe bet that national security will prevail. Bill, China is not alone here. Isn't the U.S. also openly emphasizing national security in its foreign policy? We are. Both Treasury Secretary Yellen and National Security Advisor Sullivan have given speeches recently where they indicated that national security was now a primary factor in economic and foreign policy. What I find interesting in, in the reaction to these speeches is they have been characterized in the media as conciliatory toward China. This is because both suggested that our goal was not to decouple from China, but to de-risk. I think this is a distinction without a difference. China presents a difficult national security problem, one much different than the Soviet Union. With the Soviets, there was very little economic integration with much of the West, so isolating the Soviet bloc was, was really not all that hard. That is not the case with China. We are seeing that issue play out over components for electric vehicles and alternative energy. Essentially, the U.S. and Europe are faced with either trying to build these components at home at great effort and almost certainly higher cost, or import them from China at lower cost for immediate implementation. The Inflation Reduction Act tried to address this issue, but it has clearly been controversial. For example, the Biden administration has given solar panels a reduced tariff window, fearing that cutting off imports will lead to scarcity. The installation firms are thrilled. The producers of solar panels are furious. If dependence on China is seen as a risk, then there isn't much difference between de-risking and decoupling. Do you expect more efforts within the United States similar to the current drive to restrict or even ban TikTok? Well, I suspect so. One element of the political dynamic is there is little benefit to being seen as cooperative with China. In office, cooperation might make sense, but in elections, being hawkish on China is likely going to be a winning position. Bill, we mentioned in our introduction that this new Chinese law is further evidence pointing to changes in the global investment environment. Can we summarize by saying that interventionist government actions are on the rise and decisions about allocating resources are no longer being left to markets alone? Well, you're precisely correct. Free trade, where nations specialize in what they do best, assumes a stable geopolitical environment. Efficiently importing makes sense when the world is stable. It looks foolish under geopolitical stress. In other words, under stability and peace, getting important products from the lowest cost producer is perfectly rational. But instability creates potential for supply disruptions. Let's try to put it more concretely. Having the world's most sophisticated semiconductor chip foundries within range of China's short-range missiles seemed fine when we didn't see China as a strategic threat. Now that we do, we are racing to build redundant capacity in the U.S. and elsewhere. Do we see other countries besides the United States emphasizing national security over economic efficiency? Clearly, the Europeans are moving to stop depending on Russian energy, which is cheap and abundant. 
Once Russia invaded Ukraine, it became clear that there were other costs associated with being dependent on Russia. Bill, it's easy to see how inflation might rise if economic efficiency no longer rules. What other trends can we expect? Well, an element of a geopolitically safe world is just-in-time inventory management. When supply chains are safe and the world is stable, not holding inventory reduces costs. When supply chains are less safe, not holding inventory becomes risky. We have created an entire economy based on not holding inventory. That's clearly going to change. Once upon a time in the late 80s, 4% inflation was seen as a good thing. Will those days return? Well, Phil, you bring up a really interesting point. In the March 21st edition of the Sunday New York Times, Paul Krugman laid out a soft landing scenario for the U.S. economy that relied on inflation running 3%. That might not be possible if we need inflation at 2%. Since the early 1980s, central banks around the world have mostly settled on a 2% inflation target. Now, I will say there is nothing magic about 2%. That target was mostly settled on without a whole lot of analysis. As Adam Posen at the Peterson Institute notes, the fact that central banks had to take policy rates to zero or below is pretty strong evidence that a 2% inflation target is probably too low. At the same time, however, we don't know how markets will react to allowing for a higher target. Moving to 3 or 4% may not matter all that much, but we can't be sure that there won't be enough nonlinear response. One problem is, if you raise the target, how will investors and households and businesses know if it won't be changed again? We don't think central banks will easily give up on 2%, but I do think eventually they'll have no choice but to give it up. On the investment side, are value stocks and commodities likely to gain traction in this new environment? Well, we think so. Short-duration investing is a theme we support, which means avoiding long-duration bonds and growth stocks, taking more credit risk and fixed income, and holding value stocks and dividend payers. And are those expectations baked in to Confluence Investment Management Asset Allocation Guidelines? They are. In fixed income, we have established bond ladders, which put positions in a series of maturities. When the shortest dated one expires, we buy the longest target date. This process mitigates duration risk. We also added commodities several years ago, and currently we are tilted toward value stocks. But because our asset allocation portfolios are cyclical, they are not static, and so under some conditions, we could venture into long-duration investments. But we suspect over the foreseeable future that will only be done on an opportunistic basis. Thank you, Bill. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler.